listening to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we clarify distinctions between Mormon and Credo-Christian thought. I'm Brendan, here with... Sky. And we are in the last episode of the year. We did it. Can you believe it? We... Did it. Well, unless I have a heart attack. I know. We could kill over (laughs) before the end of the episode. There's a gas leak somewhere in here. We're not going to make it. (laughs) Uh, But wow. What a year. Yeah. It has been. It has definitely been a year and uh, much more fun stuff to come. So, um, yeah, we got dreams. We got dreams and visions and revelations, don't we? Yeah, yeah, probably too much. <laughs> yeah, there's just so much that we could cover on this, but uh, it's been fun. It's been a good year. What would you say has been your favorite part or aspect of doing this podcast this year? Honestly, so it's been. It's something maybe that uh, listeners that find the the podcast feed in and listen to it later or out mm-hmm. of order would appreciate when you're doing this week in week out. You you do not have time to go as slow as you want yep. <laughs> when it comes to the things that interest you most, and so I feel like this has been. Um kind of a rehashing, a revisiting of so much reading I've done before that seemed to have no purpose other than to um, torment myself mm. every time I remembered what I used to believe or yep. what I used to grapple with as an LDS believer, as a Mormon believer. Yep. Um, but, yeah, the taking the approach that uh, you're forced to take in studying a creed like the Nicene Creed and seeing the historical circumstances and kind of the stage of history that's taking place in in that time and that place with those languages. Mm -hmm. And then to see the theological debate and how we extrapolate from that, you know, what are essential Christian beliefs that has really helped in terms of, I think hopefully when I hope the listener agrees, I guess ultimately they're the jury on this. Yep. If it helps for them to see, not just these ideas, this isn't just talking head theology either, and see the development and the changes and the choices that have had to be made here and there throughout Mormon history. And um, yeah, I don't know, I guess in kind of rehashing everything, I feel like I understand it even better than I used to. Yeah. Yep. I don't know. Yeah. It's been really helpful to, um, for me as an outsider coming into Utah, having no background in Mormonism really, other than a few books that I had read here and there, you know, before coming out here to Utah. Um, it's been really helpful to take much more of a deep dive and both to get into some of the historical arguments and the progression of thought, but also just to keep track with the things that they're saying and believing on the street level mm-hmm. by using their come follow me curriculum. That's been really helpful to see like, this is, this is where it is today, but then to be able to kind of trace those thoughts back in, into the past. And it's been really helpful to, 
to be able to, and I hope the listener agrees, but to be able to contrast that with um, the New Testament teaching that yeah. they've been going through. So it's, yeah. it's been a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, the, one of the reasons I wanted to start this podcast in the first place was just because for me, I, I, I enjoy pushing myself to learn. And so I, I, I tend to cram my schedule full with deadlines because uh, I tend to do, do best up against the deadline. So doing this podcast has just forced me in a way that I wanted it to, to read a lot more uh, just good theology. And, yeah. and uh, you know, I, I think I've be, become, it's funny, you know, in the, in the same way that you say that you feel like you understand Mormon doctrine so much better, for me it's helped ground me in solid doctrine a lot better and just having to read and think through the truths of the faith that we believe the faith once for all delivered to the saints that we want to preserve, um, to, to hold fast to those truths all the more deeply, um, as you compare it up against really what we would obviously say is a counterfeit. For sure. Would you say it's, um, doing this every week has achieved that goal explicitly for you in the sense of learning more or more quickly? Yeah. So, well, that was the yes in terms of just uh, for me. It's it's more of uh, on the orthodox side of things. It's more of uh, maintenance. Yeah. Right. Like there's just, there's a lot of these things that I've studied deeply in my seminary days, mm-hmm. but it, you know it's just like with with anything if if you don't you know practice it and continue learning and growing and, and going deeper you just you get rusty like you know i joke with people sometimes and and tell them and, and i say this about people with the bible and the importance of reading the bible as well is i i don't so much read to learn new things as much as it, it is to relearn the things that i've already forgotten yeah. you know it's like yeah i need to be reminded of these truths over and over again and of course that's the pattern of god's people um, throughout the Old Testament that we see the importance of remembering because we forget, you know, and, and so um, it certainly has helped on that front. Now, the second reason I wanted to start this podcast, and I don't know if I've said this on the pod before, I've said it to you, I'm sure, and I've said it to others, but as I got to know you and talked to you about LDS doctrine, as you being the the person who had studied a lot of it before, um, I, most of the time when I talk to you, about LDS doctrine, I just felt like a deer in headlights sort of a thing, you know, early on. And maybe some of that is because the podcast did help you have to systematize it in your mind a little more clearly to be able to articulate these things. But a lot of it was just like, I didn't understand Mormon thought, you know, kind of the worldview behind it all, what what undergirded all of it, you know. And it, it, this podcast has definitely helped me just in the work that you've done on the LDS side of things to be able to see how the worldview all fits together. Um, you know, even even to be able to identify where the inconsistencies are better, and that's been uh, that's been a real help. So it's been it's been fun. I've is, enjoyed it. Is there a theme? Um, I get, I want to, I was going to say theme that they've hit in the manual most, but maybe just a theme that's come up as we've dealt with it, that has been one of the more surprising or impactful in terms of how you now articulate, say, guard your flock on Sunday or understand when you're 
I don't know, talking to a neighbor. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's been progression. Just the, the The total centrality of progression within the whole thought. Um, and seeing how that is laced through uh, all the way in the ancient, I say ancient, but you know, the beginnings of the LDS church all, all, all the way into how they thought about it. And you still see it all through the current manuals today. It is all about this personal development, personal progression. Um, and you know, shamelessly even into being a God. And, uh, and so, yeah, I think just being able to see that clearly, in every lesson that we've done um, has been really helpful. And yeah, it certainly does. You know, as I'm having conversations with people, uh, it just kind of helps you cut through to the heart of, of an LDS worldview to be able to communicate more clearly about the differences between their worldview and the true gospel. Yeah. So. And I, I hope that even some of the more, they're called arcane or speculative, you know, that can be speculative can be a useful term. It can also be just a dismissive term for something someone doesn't want to deal with. Um, But more supposedly speculative doctrines, I hope that the listeners now can kind of see, Oh, that's why someone would believe Michael God. Yeah. Or that's why someone wouldn't believe in hell, even if it's in their book of Mormon or, you, you know, why they would, feel comfortable talking about this, but not that. Yep. Um, so I hope, I, I don't, you know, <laughs> um, I hope we improve even more going forward. I think for me, I don't think they're changing essentially as much as I used to think. Mm-hmm. That's something that going through this week to week and just seeing that, oh no, it's still there. Yeah. They just, mask it under self-improvement yeah or becoming like your parents heavenly parents or you know they they've definitely um made softer the language yeah but i actually don't think they're changing as much on those it's the essentials of eternal progression becoming gods things like that i'm more skeptical of the view that they're going to get rid of that yeah after this year i think for me more personally it's been an opportunity to kind of face a lot of pain, and I apologize to the listener when that's come through too much. Yeah, honestly, I I, I feel like there have been episodes where I've gotten in my own way mm-hmm. in terms of the objective um, of being a place that an LDS could listen more comfortably as well. That being said, I don't know <laughs> I don't know at what point uh, it's I've got to be me too, you know. Yeah. But I definitely have felt the change through the year being able to talk about these things in a way that in which I feel totally dysregulated and um, not detached at all to I hopefully by the end still being passionate of course, but um, not being as uh, what personally involved emotionally mm-hmm. as we do the recording. Yep. Um, so it's been a good opportunity. Yep. I don't know. It probably hasn't helped our numbers at least so far (laughs) in terms of listeners, but I, you know, hopefully it'll improve going forward. You know, we've got a long way to go, Lord willing. So this is uh, year one. Yeah. In the books almost. Yeah. You know, we got another, I don't know, 50 minutes or so before we can say that. So hopefully we make it through and do it. We can say that for real. It, you know, it's funny because we're actually recording the podcast out of order. So it's true for you, the listener. 
Yeah. It's actually not true for us. We haven't recorded the Christmas episode. We yet, got so, one uh, more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We still got to finish one more, but mm-hmm. relative to the listening order of this podcast, yeah. this is the end. I feel like we need some really sappy music, you know, or something <laughs> like just, we should have done something. should have, should have brought some cupcakes in here or something. It, it, yeah. Would, it's like, what are we going to do after? I don't know. Yeah. I I'm going to you know, go home to my kids. Yeah. And, go prep. For the nice and green at some point. (laughs) Yep. Yeah, if you are tuning in for the first time by chance, uh, starting in the new year, we're going to be diving into the Nicene Creed, and we're going to walk through that slowly. We're going to cover some of the historical backdrop behind the Nicene Creed, which is a really important issue out here because anytime that I bring up the Nicene Creed, there tends to be all sorts of false assumptions as to the historical backdrop of the council. Um, and so we'll cover some of that and we will also unashamedly bring up some of the problems that are there. And, uh, you know, we're not saying that everything is squeaky clean in church history. Church history is messy. I mean, you're dealing with messy people. Um, My local church is messy. So, you know, it's like, it's just the nature of the beast. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, that, that's that's why Christ is our perfection because none of us are, yep. and uh, and so um, yeah, that'll even that will tie into the fact of why we need a final judgment exactly and what we're talking about today. But yeah, exactly. tune in with us in the new year and uh, walk through the Nicene Creed with us. And uh, yeah, we're we're playing with some other ideas of other things we can be doing throughout the year as well. So um, let us know if you have any thoughts or feedback. Let us know what's been most helpful to you this year. You know, we we've got. Uh, a good handful of you who are regular listeners. And so mm-hmm. given that this is the end of the year, would you, would you maybe consider just taking a couple of minutes and writing us a couple lines at distinctive Christianity at gmail.com and just let us know what was the highlight for you this yeah. year? Why, why have you kept listening? Uh, what are things that uh, you would like to see us improve on? We really value that feedback and would appreciate it. And if you're one of our listeners who's been loving the podcast and you've not hit that five star review on Apple mm-hmm. Podcasts yet, you know, ha- happy new awesome. year! Just uh, give yeah. us a little New Year present for sure. Maybe. One thing I would like as well is if there's a f- you know a few favorite episodes from this year to let us know because yeah. I'd love to re-listen and kind of. Say, oh, okay, maybe this is a more effective way to g- convey the content over over the episode. Yep. And then, yeah, if you know someone that would be interested in this kind of thing, you should share yep. the podcast yep. as well. Definitely, definitely, definitely. All right. Well. Here we go. Let's hit it. Uh, we are covering... The LDS Come Follow Me curriculum for the last time, at least for a couple of years, that is going to be taught in LDS wards across the world from December 25th to the 31st. Um, I don't know if they'll actually be meeting for this, will they? You think they'll meet on the... I, th- I, th- I think so. Yeah, because be, this will be taught on the 21st. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway... You'll yeah. be studying it one way or another, right? Mm-hmm. There's got—I mean, it's a Sunday school manual, so they got to be doing something. Yeah. Uh, and the text that's being covered this week is Revelation 15 to the to 22. Uh, so, pretty big chunk of scripture there. Now, they—I'm sure—covered 15 and 16 in the seminary manual, but at least what we have here in the Sunday school manual is just 17 and 18. In one section, Revelation 19 and 20 in another, and then Revelation 21, 1 to 22, 5 in the last section here. So 
those are the portions that will be covered in the Sunday School lesson, and we'll just walk through and make some comments as we go. Um, maybe just do section by section today, if you're good with that. We didn't really talk through how we want to yeah. cover this, but mm-hmm. that tends to work normally. All right, the title over this lesson is, He that overcometh shall inherit all things. Um, again, you got to overcome if you want to inherit all things, and we agree with that on the surface, but what is the manner by which we will overcome? And that for us is the critical question. Uh, For us, we will overcome in Christ because he is our victor. And if we are in him, uh, we, we have the victory because he is the one who wins the victory for us. And so our overcoming is in him. And, uh, and that's a little bit different, of course, from an LDS perspective, yeah. um, where the overcoming is contingent entirely on your performance and your works and right. the things that you're doing. So, um, yeah, we get into the first uh, little portion here, which is always the instruction to the teacher. And they say, what does the battle between good and evil describe in Revelation, described in Revelation teach you about the importance of following Christ here on earth? After pondering this principle... Consider the needs of your class members. What truths from Revelation can, and that's capital R, Revelation, uh, not personal Revelation in this case. What truths from Revelation can help them make righteous choices? And I just made a, a little note there that, you know, from a credo Christian perspective, having walked through this stuff all year, I just made a little note that it's never about trusting Christ who saves, you know, it's always about making righteous choices and what, what can you gain from the scripture to be a better version of you and to progress yourself as we were just mentioning with the progression Mm -hmm. pattern. Um, Revelation is all about Jesus winning. Like it's all about highlighting the absolute victory that he's going to have and all who are in him are going to share in that victory. Not because we have been victorious ourselves, um, but because we are in him and he wins for us. And so it's all about looking at Jesus and worshiping Jesus. We got to remember, even in the context of Revelation, this, this isn't just a bunch of, of detached uh, futuristic predictions about things that have nothing to do with the early church whom John was writing to. John is encouraging these believers in the early church who are undergoing tremendous persecution um, because there was seasons of heavy persecution from uh, the from from Rome, and he's seeking to encourage them to to remind them. In the end, Jesus wins. You may be slaughtered here. You may be a martyr here in the earth. Your blood may be spilled out in the here and now, but guess what? If you're in Christ, you still get the victory. Mm -hmm. And he's not saying it's on the basis of what works you've done. He's saying it's on the basis of you being included into the Lamb's Book of Life from before the foundation of the world. And so just hope in Jesus. And uh, it's just never that, sadly, in the LDS curriculum. In fact, just to highlight once again this, um, the reshifting of the whole purpose, the revelation is of Jesus. He's won the victory. And that might mean we lose in the worldly sense, right? Oh, yeah. The suffering. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, and so it's an encouragement. I mean, think think of the great faith chapter right. of Hebrews 11. Yeah. Right? It's like we love all the beginning ones of the, mm-hmm. the, the well-known people that are listed throughout, and then you get to the end of the chapter, and it's like, 
some were devoured by lions. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's yeah, like, we don't. They were still, that. they were yeah. still trusting Christ yeah. all the way to the end. Yeah, yeah. I think of the stoning of Stephen. Yep. Uh, even the martyrdom of his brother James, who wrote the epistle that we don't have in the New Testament, but from secular sources. But they they shift this to this abstract battle between good and evil. Mm-hmm. And I think that's easy to read quickly past, but it, it, it really isn't that in the abstract, right? It, yeah. it is by implication, but within the worldview that has the creator-creation distinction and Christ being on the creator side of the line and having won the victory here in creation, there is a conflict between the the dragon and the church. Mm-hmm. But it's not the dragon and God. Yeah. Right? It's the dragon and the church. And it is an insight. John's revelation of Jesus is an insight into victory in spite of almost all the evidence being to the contrary for some. And, but, you know, but notice as well, you know, where they have this abstract battle of good and evil that in their worldview, based on 2 Nephi 2, for example, would be true of any world. The importance of following Christ here on, really, and I put right above it, this earth, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? And then, of course, it's pondering principles. It's not understanding, it's not exegeting the text. It's not, um understanding what John wrote in context and how yeah. that can inform the life lived now. Yeah. And so it's just principles, truths, and then of course your righteousness as you already emphasized. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And then you get into the invite sharing section, not a whole lot that is new there. Just, in, you know, share scriptures that helped you to better know Jesus and become more like him. I do like the better know Jesus Christ. Um, The Bible ought to lead us to better know who he is, but Mm -hmm. let's really, really pay attention to that. Uh, What is Revelation saying about Jesus and Mm -hmm. um, and his absolute total victory over evil? Um, And then you get into the teach the doctrine section, and we begin with Revelation 17 and 18. Revelation 17 and 18 uh, generally uh, cover the um, image of this great prostitute and this beast and the fall of Babylon, which is really just a uh, description of the city of man as a whole. Um, 17 and 18 are really kind of a tale of two, well, I should say 17 and 18, and really all the way through 19 are a tale of two cities, you could say. And the one city is the city of man, and the other city is the city of God. And really this is setting the stage for the conquering king, Jesus, uh, winning the victory on behalf of all the citizens of the city of God who are rescued out of, finally and forever, the city of man. And so 17 and 18 is highlighting the horrors of the city of man, and it's depicting this great beast and his, you know, his ability to captivate the entirety of the, this city and this just gorgeous, uh, beautiful um, prostitute who is seated on top of this uh, beast, and the beast is depicted as having seven horns, which is fascinating how that uh, really was probably an, uh, an allusion to, toward Rome, which Rome was built on seven hills. And so you've got this beast of seven horns, and uh, Rome was the really the, uh, the, I mean, the capital city from which 
utter wickedness flowed. And that was the way that these Christians who were being persecuted in this city of man would have seen the city of Rome in particular. So again, we're just remembering the context that this is originally being written in. But, but of course, this symbolism really refers more generally to the wickedness of the world, period. Um, the, the city of man not just being people who are citizens of Rome proper, but people who are citizens of this world, who are uh, just held captive by the ways of this beast. And so uh, the scene that's set here is just this uh, prostitute who is, uh, who is wealthy and, and decadent and powerful uh, because this beast is providing all of the, the things that man could ever seem to want. And so it's it's a picture of this great comfort and this great um, just uh, pleasure that they're getting out of the things of this world. And then in chapter 18, the fall of this great city uh, is described. And uh, of course, there it, it turns and starts referring to this great city as Babylon. And that's, uh, again, just more of a, a general reference to the city of man as a whole. And so that's what you have going on in chapters uh, 17 and 18 generally. And their subtitle here in the LDS Come Follow Me curriculum is We Must Separate Ourselves from the Wickedness of the World. We Must Separate Ourselves from the wickedness of the world. Now, the uh, interesting thing about that in comparison to Revelation uh, 17 and 18 is that the city of God is separate from the city of the world. Like, it's not uh, that they're mixed in and need to separate themselves. It's that those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life are innately separate from this city. So really, these are two different spiritual communities being described here, if you will. And so it's not really so much about separating yourself in that sense, but that's the subtitle that they put. We must separate ourselves from the wickedness of this world. And they say it's not particularly pleasant to read about the wickedness and fall of Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18, but it is instructive because Babylon can be a symbol of the wicked world we live in today. Maybe you could divide these chapters among the class members and ask them to look for answers to questions like these. Why are people drawn to Babylon or worldliness? Why is Babylon dangerous? What will happen to Babylon? What warnings did John give to help us avoid Babylon's fate? And then they go on to say, after reading Revelation 18.4, class members could discuss how they come out of Babylon and be not partakers of her sins. They could share scriptures or messages from church leaders and uh, that have helped them resist the temptations of Babylon or the world. Consider watching the video, Dare to Stand Alone, or Elder Cook's statement and additional resources. Class members can share ideas about how to apply two principles Elder Cook mentioned. In what sense do we come out of Babylon? What can we do to encourage others to do the same? Now, here's Elder Cook's quote here, and the subtitle they put over that quote is Choosing Righteousness Over Babylon's Wickedness, and Elder Cook taught this. We cannot avoid the world. A cloistered existence is not the answer. In a positive sense, our contribution to the world is part of our challenge and is essential if we are to develop our talents. Members of the church need to be involved in the world in a positive way. How then do we balance the need to positively contribute to the world and to not succumb to the sins of the world? See Doctrine and Covenants 25.10 and 59.9. Two principles will make a significant difference. And here's two principles. Let people know. Let people know. You are a committed Latter-day Saint. 
That's the first thing. That's a principle. That's a principle. And then secondly, be confident about and live your beliefs. So those are the two principles that will help Latter-day Saints to not succumb to the world. And, uh, you know, I I just, uh, I, 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 I mean, do you see this being the current, thing in the, uh, you know, it just, it, maybe I have the wrong impression. I could really have the wrong impression here, but I just don't get the sense. And this is something we've alluded to all year that when Latter-day Saints are, I mean, how many times have I had feedback from people who have met with LDS missionaries and, you know, they reach out to me because I'm the pastor in Provo who interacts with LDS people all the time. And they're just like so confused because these LDS missionaries have not talked about any of their doctrinal distinctives and have only tried to talk about how they're Christians and we agree on everything. Yeah. Right. Um, (laughs) So, yeah. And yet here it says, let people know you are a committed Latter-day Saint. What does that mean? I know to be a committed Latter-day Saint? Does it mean that you hold fast to the doctrinal distinctions of the Latter-day Saints and you proclaim those to other people uh, proudly and boldly, um, believing in your heart that these are the truths of the restored gospel that are the only hope for mankind to have what they most need in the next life, which is uh, celestial glory? Or you know, is it something that's just going to kind of be covered and, and clouded and uh, in a sort of uh, ambiguity for the intention of blending in and and maybe gaining some some level of security in being identified as a Christian. Um, you know, yeah. it's just it's just I know that's just just thinking out loud here. No, but, but I and do you get the sense that they're confident in their beliefs? Yeah. I mean I I get the sense they could be confident in their lifestyle distinctives. Okay, you don't drink coffee or whatever. Um maybe that's what this will kind of default into because my assumption is it is going to be mostly lifestyle distinctions. And that's why, you know, I wrote out above the bit here is, is this behavioral only that we must separate ourselves from the wickedness of the world? Is that behavioral only, or is that also on the basis of false belief? Right. You know, like what, what, what is the, and that's of course coming from the idea of the two beasts, that we considered a couple of weeks back in the episode on uh, chapter 13, where you have the first beast um, who does come uh, giving all these haughty and blasphemous words and just being kind of this outrageous uh, sort of a a character. And then you have another beast that is rising out of the earth, has two horns uh, like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in the presence and makes the um, earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven um, to earth in front of the people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. So you see the beast is really a beast that is causing false worship 
that is creating this image and is leading people to worship a false god. And so, um, yeah, when you're talking about separating yourself from the wickedness of the world, let's make sure that we're not worshiping a, a, a false god or a false yeah. image, yeah. Um, even above the behavioral, ethical, moral sorts of, of things that are going to, of course, probably be the first things to be pointed out in an LDS context. Yeah, and even that, that ties into the, in the first paragraph, right? Notice, in a positive sense, in terms of not avoiding the world, what's the LDS contribution according to Cook here? It, it is essential. What is essential to the LDS contribution to the world? We develop our talents. Yeah. We become excellent people. We become Steve Young's and Mitt Romney's and whatever. Is there any believing Christian worth his salt that would say something like that? That our contribution to the world is to be awesome. Yeah. To develop our talents. Now, should Christians develop their talents? That's not really the point. What's our contribution to the world? To proclaim Christ mm-hmm. and Him crucified. Yeah. That's what makes Christians different. Yeah. Not Christ is not there's something nothing intrinsic to Christians that makes them yep. different apart from the God who has saved them. Yeah. And and that God saves messy lives. It saves messy people. Of course we all are if we're honest. Yep. yep. That's something LDS struggle with. Yeah. They hide it better. But um, but it's <laughs> you know, I don't know. I, to me that's incredible statement that is one of those statements that if you slow down, you're like, that is actually pretty shocking that an allegedly apostle of Jesus would say that as the contribution that the one true church has to the world. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. And here's the interesting thing too, is a lot of this um, text, of course, is being used to try to encourage this personal progression that is necessary for these people to attain salvation. And just another note from a credo-Christian perspective on what's going on here in this text, it's important to notice that the um, the woman who is enticing people to worship these things of the world is depicted here as a prostitute. It's de- She's depicted as a, as a harlot. Mm-hmm. She is not depicted as an adulterer. And so the the significance of that is that the image is contrasting this harlot and all who will follow her and follow in her ways with the bride. Mm-hmm. And the bride are those who are, of course, the, the, the true followers of Jesus, the church. And the, the bride will be protected, will be preserved, will not fall for the ways of the harlot. And that's really what's being conveyed here. It's not about this uh, agency of choice. It's showing the final absolute victory yeah. of those who are the bride because the mm-hmm. bridegroom is coming and is going to put an end to the harlot and all of her ways. And so, um, you know, just zoom out from the text and kind of look at things a little more objectively. It's not difficult to see those things. It's yeah. not, this isn't an appeal for you to make a choice to be detached from the world. It's right. showing that, those who are the bride of Christ, who are now in the world, um, will gain victory because yeah. they are ultimately the bride, even as they are amidst the people of the harlot. Yeah. And um, yeah. so they'll be they'll be called out and will will come on the last day because they already belong to the bridegroom. Yeah. Okay. Um, anything else on that section? Nope. 
Okay, and then we'll get into Revelation 19 and 20 on the next section. And 19 and 20 is this, uh, 19 begins with this glorious image where John's attention and the vision is turned towards this great loud multitude in heaven who are crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And so there is a celebration going on in heaven for this justice that has just been poured out upon the city of Babylon. Um, boy, that that is a um, that is a text to be grappled with. Is it not that that all God's faithful ones will one day um, not just be, uh, you know, reluctantly, um, uh, you know, obligated to talk about the justice of God, but will sing worship songs to God for the justice that He pours out on the yeah. wicked, and that I mean that includes people we know um, right now that one day when our faith really becomes sight and we are rid of all of the junk that comes with a broken uh, perspective, we will rejoice in heaven over the justice of God. Um, we, we weep now in a creaturely sense, mm-hmm. um, but one day we will sing hallelujah over God's justice, over all the wickedness of man and all the wickedness of the the beast that has caused or used, I guess, the condition of man in order to cause such such havoc in the world. And then you've got the image of the marriage supper of the Lamb, where um, all these people from every you know tribe, tongue, people, language, nation are gathered around this this uh, wonderful wedding feast where. We are uh, united, um, well, consummated, I guess, to Christ as our bridegroom. And then um, you've got an image after that of the rider on the white horse, uh, of course, being Jesus himself, uh, coming down and putting an end to all of the wickedness uh, again and uh, and executing justice. Yeah. And then it's not just uh, Jesus meek and mild there. Yeah, it? that's right. That's right. And uh, we'll just have to read some of that here in a little bit. And then uh, let me just read it. Read yeah, they it don't now. focus on it at all. Yeah, this is this is chapter 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on, uh, written that uh, no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I could go on there, but just just a wait. Who's the Lord? Yeah, of Lords. Uh, yeah. Uh, yep, that's there's right. only one Lord, though. Yeah, uh, uh, there's only one. Yeah, uh, this is a a uh, an event to end all. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and to make all right, and then you've got the thousand year reign, which there are, of course, even within Cradle Christianity, differing views on how that ought to be interpreted. That we won't go into 
today, but you can look up the difference between premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism. And that could be a fascinating discussion because postmill is on the rise again. But uh, the argument within evangelical Christianity is just when does this thousand years occur, basically? And how does that relate to the final judgment? Does final judgment come after this thousand years, or has the thousand years already occurred when the final judgment happens. Um, that's the debate within credo Christianity. But you've got, nonetheless, the defeat of Satan that comes after that, and then the judgment before the great white throne, the great white throne judgment. So that's what we have going on in 19 and 20. Now here's what we get in the LDS Come Follow Me curriculum. We can prepare for the Lord's second coming and the day of judgment. We can prepare for it. How? The second coming of Jesus Christ is frequently called the great and terrible day of the Lord. And based on Revelation 19 and 20, that seems like a good description. Consider writing on the board some of the events described in Revelation 19, 5 to 2015. Invite class members to find the verses that describe these events. Why are these events called great and terrible? What do we learn from these events about the Savior and those who follow him? What can we do now to be among those who will rejoice at the time of his coming? Um, yeah. yeah. Notice that seam word. Isn't that a little weird? Yeah. That seems like a good description. Yeah. In a way, someone speaks about the word of God. Yeah. It does It does just make me, I like, this is one of those points where I'm like, what? what is going to be the nature of this discussion Yeah. in an LDS ward? Um, how do you deal with this kind of Jesus who's yeah. coming in with a sword and his robe is dipped in the blood of his enemies? Yeah. Um, he is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. Uh, he will execute wrathful judgment yeah. upon all who have refused to bow their knee to him mm -hmm. and to worship him as he has revealed himself. Yep. Um, yeah, this, this should terrify those who are not in him through faith. Yeah. In the seminary manual, how they cover it, quote-unquote, is just by symbolism, ironically. Mm. So they'll say, you know, invite the students to read this. They have a picture. And, um, of course, I'll put the link in the show notes. Does that look like uh, what you just read? <laughs> And then, it, oh, yeah. And then what they say is they just say, oh, just, you know, what, yeah. what can we figure out from the symbols? So they isolate the symbols yeah. instead of just reading right through and getting the that sense of the whole passage. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. No, that's just happy white Jesus. <laughs> um. And then you just discuss the symbols, oh. you know? And so it's just. Yeah. Yeah, there's not much there. And the heading is symbolism of, of Jesus at his second coming. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah, that's that's that. There's a really significant passage here that we need to read. And then uh, we'll turn our attention to something else that you brought up from the seminary manual. I don't know if you want, you want to read that or you want me to on the uh, Book of Life. Yeah, do you want to read that? Yeah, so let me read the text itself. This is Revelation 20. And I'll begin reading in verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out and deceive the nations that are the four corner that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up 
over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beasts and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented. Uh, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne in him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead and were in uh, the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay, so we have seen the book of life. Yeah, come up before already. We covered this uh, a few weeks ago, but the mm-hmm. book of life has been present throughout Revelation, and what we have seen is that those who are written in this particular book, the book of life, are those who are covered by the blood of the Lamb. Yeah, are those who are not going to face uh, the final wrath of God because their name is written in the Lamb's book of life and. What we've seen is when this book is brought up, uh, it's even mentioned as having um, been recorded, names having been recorded before the foundation of the world. And so those who are in Christ through faith are those whose name was written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. And those are the ones who are not going to face the wrath of God on the last day, who are not going to be thrown into the lake of fire. Now, from a critical Christian perspective, we do believe that believers even will be judged according to our works. And we do believe that there will be some sort of rewards. We don't know what those are going to be. I mean, this is really one of the few places where it's alluded to in the Bible. Uh, but we we certainly don't have enough to begin to develop different levels of heaven. And what we ultimately end up seeing anyways is all this stuff gets cast at the feet of Jesus and is for the purpose of bringing praise and worship and glory to his name on the last day as we you know, cast down our, our crowns at, at his feet, because ultimately he is the one who gets the glory for every good work that we do. Um, so, you know, there is, there is something there, but, but notice how there's a distinction that's made between these books that seem to have a record of our lives in it, and the book of life. Um, there's a distinction between those two things. Those are not the same things. There's a, there's this one book in which every name is recorded of those who are washed by the blood of the Lamb, and that's what the book of life is. And so, um, yeah, let's just, let's just look at how the LDS people do the book of life thing. Right. Um, yeah, go, go with whatever you want to go with there. Okay, so in, in the Sunday School Manual itself, the way they cover it is... To inspire a discussion about the book of life in the final judgment, you could invite class members to create a simple book by folding a piece of paper into fourths. They could then read Revelation 20, 12 through 15, 2 Nephi 9, 14, 29, 11, and ponder what they would want to have written about them in the book of life. Invite them to write those things in their books and invite a few class members to share something they wrote. 
What choices can we make now so that these things will be written in the book of life? To help class members not feel discouraged about their own spiritual progress, consider sharing counsel from Jeff Holland's message, be there for perfect eventually. So what's interesting and what I wrote to the side of that whole paragraph is what does Jesus do in this? They always want to say we're saved by grace now. Anyway, mm-hmm. we're saying, you know, we do our part, he does his part. They, they, and yet here in the section on the final judgment, they make no statement of what Christ has done. None. Zero. And they cite Jeff Holland's subliminal MMP message. Is what I, call it. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if he believes in it, but be there for perfect eventually. Two quick thoughts, and then I want to jump into the seminary manual on the same thing, because there's a difference that's actually a pretty big deal. First, um, when discussing with an LDS, an LDS when discussing with a Christian, one distinction that I think may help further some of the conversation is when we're talking about heaven and hell, Sometimes we get stuck on the where, when really the Christian emphasis is on the who, like mm-hmm. you said, the antithesis, heaven, hell. LDS are going to get caught up in their graded system, right? So make sure what's clear is, are we discussing the where or the who? We have a lot of biblical data on the who, which is yeah. the saved and the damned. We have less information on the where, right, other than... With God, or uh, with God in His grace, I should say, in heaven, or quote unquote, with God in His wrath in hell. By the way, hell is not a place apart from God; it's it's a place apart from God's grace. Right? Even in hell, was one of the Psalms says, "Right, you are there." So, or in Sheol, which I know is a place of the dead, which isn't hell. But anyway, yeah. you see the point: yeah. <laughs> is there's no the one God created all things. There's no place of, that exists apart from Him. Now, uh, part number uh, two is um, this be there for perfect verse. This is something that's come to mind a few times, never gotten it in. They're going to point out a difference sometimes between Matthew 5 and 3 Nephi, where in Matthew, be there for perfect, like, right? Uh, my Father in heaven, is that is perfect? Mm-hmm. Is that how it's said? Whereas in the Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith says, as... I am and the Father. He includes himself, which of course is Joseph Smith taking the side against the Unitarians in the Book of Mormon. We're going to get to that when we kind of go through the development of the Last Judgment in Mormon theology. But so ironically, what's being used as a, a point saying Jesus is on the God side of the line against the Unitarians, even though it's a form of heresy called modalism, as we've covered several times, it's now used to say Jesus became perfect because he was already resurrected when he appeared to the white Native American civilization, for which there is no historical evidence whatsoever. Um, and, and that's why he conclude himself. See, they use it as part of the progression story. And so, anyway, I just wanted to point that out because Holland's talk came up. But All right, now back to the point, the Book of Life point. In the Seminary Teacher Manual, this is how they cover the same point. The heading is called Your Book of Life, and it says, Read Revelation 20.12 again and consider marking the phrase, The Book of Life. In one sense, the Book of Life is a record of each person's life. Write the title, My Book of Life, across the top of a blank page in your study journal, and then divide the page into two columns. Label the left column, I'm glad I did, and make a list in that specific or so, sorry, make a list in that column of specific things that you are grateful to have in your book of life. 
This might include ordinances you have received, good deeds you have done, your righteous desires, and the development of your relationship with Jesus. This is the sentence right after. Imagine how good it will feel one day to have the Savior review with you the record of your righteousness, exclamation point. Now label the right column of the page, I would like to write down or simply ponder righteous works and ordinances you would like to add to your book before the judgment. Also include choices and attitudes that you would like to erase from the book of life through the atonement of Jesus or whatever. Okay, and so <laughs> uh, the, the, the Savior has made it possible to adjust what is recorded about you in the book of life. Read DNC 58. So yeah, there's no sense of election whatsoever. Um, and so how do these promises affect your feelings about the final judgment and about our judge? Well, I would hope no Christian out there, when thinking about the last judgment, is thinking of reminding Jesus of how good we are. Yeah. Uh, I think, yep. I hope that doesn't need to be said at this point. Your only year. hope is that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Right, based on what he's done. Yeah, and that's the Lamb's Book. Yeah. You know, he's the one who owns it. Yeah. It's not our Book of Life. Yeah. It's his Book of Life. He decides who's in his book. Yep. And uh, that's that's the point that's being made there, mm-hmm. is uh, your only hope is that your name was recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life. And uh the only way you know if that's you is if you're trusting in Jesus alone. Yeah, and the right Jesus. <laughs> the right Jesus. Yeah. Exactly. The yeah. one who's going to come to judge the living and the dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the last section, just real quick, and then I'll just turn it over for you. Yeah, to last you for all section the fun. of the year. Yep, last section of the year. Section of the year is covering Revelation 21, 1 through 22, 5. And this is the beautiful uh, picture of the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem and the river of life. And then, of course, Revelation ends with this encouragement to remember that Jesus is coming. But the subtitle here in the LDS curriculum is, If We Are Faithful, We Will Be Blessed With Celestial Glory. And then they, I guess, you know, just turn this whole imagery into celestial glory is what mm-hmm. um, this is. Uh, seems to me that every person who's written in the Lamb's Book of Life is going to the New Jerusalem and not just the cream of the crop. Yep. But, and that would include the thief on the cross. Yep, absolutely. Yep. Amen and amen. All right, man, take us, take us into some funsies here. All right. Well, the last judgment, and this will tie some together. This is, of course, going to link to several episodes as often happens when we do this kind of tour. But let's start with the Book of Mormon. So 1830, right? Well, we've um, we've covered different aspects of how, even though they claim they're going to hand a Book of Mormon out, right, as missionaries, they often don't believe it either. <laughs> um, so the Book of Mormon does not make any distinction um, between one's post-mortal life spiritual state and one's subsequent resurrection. And we're going to add this to the list. Um, first, I wanted to read from a Mormon scholar just his summary statement on the final judgment. I thought this was funny. In LDS theology, there are several major judgments that occur at different stages in one's existence. One is the premortal judgment, which determines who is worthy to come to earth and under what conditions. We covered that last time, I guess two times ago. 
Um, another is the judgment that occurs at death as one is assigned to either paradise or hell. Really, he should say prison. In the spirit world. I've, I rarely hear that called hell. Though when we use the word hell, they'll say, oh yeah, we do. But I think in the manuals, it's typically called prison, mm-hmm. spirit prison. Yet another judgment occurs at the resurrection when everyone receives either a glorified body, uh, with, or sorry, either a glorified body, which is of course graded between celestial, terrestrial, telestial, or a body with no glory at all. Finally, there is a judgment which occurs at the end of time, after every soul has been resurrected. This judgment is said by Bruce R. McConkie to make final the t- eternal state of all who have ever lived on the earth. Now, we've complicated that few points, but that is uh, McConkie Fielding Smith on, um, typically what's said when explicitly on this topic. Um, so, notice the, the final judgment singular, there isn't one. Yeah. <laughs> There's... Several, I mean, it's almost like uh, accountability sessions, you know, if like you're, you're on a workout program where every, you know, month or two you, you say, okay, where are we at? Where are we weak? Let's keep going. Yep. That's really what the scheme is. If it, if progression is eternal, you're eternally progressing. Yep. Um, and so what is a final judgment there? It can be final for this world, for this life, but even then there's five or whatever. <laughs> so... So once again, at the very least in LDS theology, there's four. Premortal, death into paradise or prison, resurrection, and then final judgment at the end of the millennium. Now, it didn't start that way. So in the Book of Mormon, um, Alma, Mormon, Mosiah, there's one final judgment, heaven or hell. It's that simple. One final judgment, heaven or hell. We've covered before that hell is said to be never-ending torment. Um, There's no middle ground, and this is clearly in the debates of the time, which are the real context of the Book of Mormon, uh, Joseph Smith's context, clearly anti-universalistic. And uh, so there's there's even acknowledgement that there's no spectrum um, of righteousness at the final judgment. There's no gradation of salvation or exaltations. And interestingly enough, if you look at the earliest layer, the earliest you know, stratum of the DNC, it's the same. So in DNC 29, which is September 1830, we have the right hand to the left, right? The right hand unto life and the left uh, hand. So there's a clear, once again, binary. Um, And in DNC 133, um, same thing, including, it includes the term outer darkness is describing those who in DNC 29 would be in the left hand. So before 1832, when we get DNC 76, which has always been this turning point, every time we've done this little, you know, tour, um, they've, it does not express any sense of gradation, mm-hmm. um, of glory in the hereafter, only those two. And once again, with the one being endless and never ending, they're both being <laughs> right. I mean, it's, it's, um, pretty clear if you'll just let the text speak, even a text, um, a work of fiction like the Book of Mormon. So in um, March 1830, we do start to see that shift as we covered before, and I'll just remind people, in 1830, we do see a shift away from eternal being eternal. Um, Bushman calls it uh, a perplexing reversal, so he even acknowledges this. And in his biography of Rough Stone Rolling, and um, where eternal and endless don't really mean that, right? They're a kind of qualitative 
thing. Um, in spite of the Bible and the Book of Mormon, it's, um, you know, his quality of judgment doesn't really mean endless. And um, this is, of course, this weird turn, the Book of Mormon being anti-universalist, this is a weird turn toward universalism. Um, in fact, in DNC 19, Six, it literally says, it is not written that there shall be no end to torment. Hmm. You believe that? <laughs> the Bible, and for LDS, even the Book of Mormon does, does that. Uh, to show the, a kind of example, we mentioned him before on previous episodes, there was a famous um, universalist preacher, Hosea Ballou, right? And he says in his treatise on atonement, which I've linked to before, that he says, I say the word eternal is not applied to the duration of happiness, but to the nature of that life, which is brought to life through the gospel. That's, of course, I'm talking about the heaven side of that. So, interestingly enough, uh, here's a feature we're going to bring out this time. In the Book of Mormon, this is in Alma, Mosiah, 2 Nephi, the individuals do not and cannot repent once they enter into the spirit world. Uh, one scholar says, the consignment to a state of either happiness or misery is fixed with no prospect of being reclaimed through hearing or accepting the gospel in the spirit world. Clearly not LDS theology today. Clearly not. Yeah. And it's the stuff like this that makes me want to go through the Book of Mormon next year. <laughs> yep. And just have the whole series be, this is what the Book of Mormon teaches, and look, they don't even believe this. Yeah. Um, so it, it, clearly in LDS theology, think of the temple right? One's eternal state is not fixed when you die, right? Um, and you can respond and repent in the spirit world. You can also sin and regress in the spirit world. So here's another thing. Book of Mormon, resurrection and the final judgment are tied and occur at the same time when Jesus comes back. This is Alma 12, 3 Nephi 26. Similarly, in the early strata of the DNC, we see this as well. Um, in uh, once again, DNC 19, it says the end of the world, the last great day of judgment. Um, DNC 29. So thus, this end time resurrection all come forth, both righteous and wicked, to be judged when Jesus comes back. Mm -hmm. um, then there's going to be a huge shift. I forgot to say one thing that I need to go back to on. With the hell point, can I just share this really quick? This is so incredible. James Talmadge, in his Articles of Faith, which... Um, Lord willing, we're going to go through. Yeah. Um, he says this, the false doctrine that the punishment to be visited upon erring souls is endless, that every sentence of sin is of interminable duration, must be regarded as one of the most pernicious results of misapprehension of Scripture. It is but a dogma of unauthorized and erring sectaries, at once unscriptural, unreasonable, and revolting to one who loves mercy and honors justice. Unscriptural. Um, interesting, because it's even in the Book of Mormon. Okay, so <laughs> now there's going to be this huge shift toward a graduated view, and this is going to need to connect um, more or less explicitly over time with the separation between salvation as typically defined as uh, resurrection meaning everyone's resurrected, so everyone's saved, unless they're talking to a Christian and want to obfuscate that fact in the moment. But uh, exaltation, of course, everyone's saved by grace um, in the sense that everyone is resurrected, but of course, exaltation is based on what you do. <clears throat> and so this shift 
is going to be, of course, in contradiction to the Book of Mormon. So the Book of Mormon denounced universalism, but now it's going to embrace it with one minor exception, which we're going to cover, called the Sons of Perdition. Um, we may not have time to get into that as much today, but still, we're going to see this trend toward universalism even in that category. Um, so in DNC 76, once again, DNC 76 being where you get the celestial, terrestrial, telestial glories revealed, it does say saves all except sons of perdition. This is DNC 76:43. Um, by the way, little children will be added in 1836 and DNC 137 in the sense of um, they will inherit glory. <clears throat> um, now, along with embracing this uh, more universal model of salvation, the image of the single final judgment starts to be also multiply. So just as there's a graded level of exaltation, you're going to have this um, complexifying of ju the judgment into several. Um, we covered the war in heaven, which is going to push back one, and then they're going to also push forward one because they're going to take the premillennial distinction as well as a given over time, though it's not in the Book of Mormon. So... If you add that to no distinction between the state in which you die and your subsequent resurrection, um, it, it's hard to say you can have a consistent Mormonism based on even their standard works, right? So now there's a clear distinction there and multiple judgments. So, uh, for example, uh, just as just one, um, suffering even the judgment that's still there in DC 76, eventually they'll at least receive uh, telestial glory. And the, it even explicitly names liars, sorcerers, adulterers, and whoremongers, um, all of which describe Joseph Smith, by the way, um, as eventually receiving um, the telestial kingdom, even though the Book of Mormon uh, explicitly will put some of these in hell forever. Um, in fact, in the Book of Mormon, even unbelievers inherit a, what's called outer darkness and other points, second death. Yet unbelievers in DNC 76 eventually inherit at least a telestial glory. So it's, you know, it's, it, it, this is going to impact. We, we saw a great example a few times ago with Nelson's Divine Love, where he's taking this passage and reinterpreting what eternal life means as exaltation when clearly that's not what it meant at the time. And yeah. they're going to have to do this, but you'll notice it always leaves this glaring exception they can't account for mm -hmm. if you look at all of the Book of Mormon. So uh, one that I keep forgetting to get to whenever we do this, in 1843, the celestial kingdom is also subdivided into three. And I don't know why. <laughs> I always have it written down. I always skip that part. Um but it, there's three levels to the celestial kingdom in DNC 131. And only those who enter the new and everlasting covenant, which we see more in DNC 132, qualify for the highest level. The new and everlasting covenant, even um, explicitly from Joseph F. Smith, was asked, is the new and everlasting covenant marriage? And he said, no. No, it's polygamy. And in fact, um, there's some evidence in early Mormonism of them using the parable of the talents and making it about wives. And so if you only have one wife, that wife will be taken and given to one who can handle more. So yep. um, now they're going to say new and everlasting covenant means just marriage. Now, um, 
And notice also in Revelation, there's only one bride. So the standard being monogamy. Um, so this is um, it, it, it still it, what's what's interesting though is um, there's still not this explicit in DC seventy six. The, the task of the celestials, right, is ministering to the inhabitants of the terrestrial kingdom. And this is the only activity explicitly identified there. So there's still not family relations, organizing of worlds, peopling of the worlds, all that. Whereas once you get to DNC 131 and 132, it's a promised continuation of seed, spirit offspring throughout all eternity, becoming gods. And what's interesting in DNC 131, um, 132, is... Um, if the top tier is polygamy, or I guess for now marriage, the bottom two would either be those, apparently by implication, right, are those who don't marry or don't enter into this covenant. And they're appointed angels and ministering servants and stuff like that to minister to the higher. So notice this. DNC 76, the higher minister to the lower. Once you get to DNC 132, which was, of course, written to pressure Emma into accepting uh, Joseph Smith's um, promiscuity um, called marriages, the lower now minister to the higher, to those more worthy, um, which is interesting. So in current LDS teaching, the, the second coming is no longer the day of judgment. It's just one. And there's a premillennial judgment, postmillennial judgment. We covered this a bit on the resurrection episode. And you have to have this to maintain any sort of consistency. I still think it can't work. But, it, you know, if you have ideas of ongoing uh, resurrection judgment, even after the second coming, how do you deal with any sort of final judgment? Um, Bruce R. McConkie, he tries to explain the final judgment as saying that it's the formal occasion, and notice how interesting that word choice is. It's the formal occasion when every living soul will stand before the judgment bar at an event that will not take place until the last soul has been resurrected to learn their status and degree of glory they are to receive in eternity. And we kind of covered this in the resurrection episode as well, where you're resurrected, but there might be a time between then and when you finally go to one of these kingdoms. And so it's kind of like a reveal party, a gender reveal, uh, something like that, um, where it's like, oh, I think I did it, you know? Um, so now... The, the, in terms of the second death and, and um, sons of perdition, there's also this trend um, to reduce those suffering the second death and to minimize who qualifies or could qualify for the sons of perdition. Once again, it's that universalist streak with just that little exception, which we covered before, really isn't one. If you, if you really <laughs> look at it, Brigham yeah. Young, John Abbott, so. Okay. Um, it's just a, an exception for now, I guess, is all you could say. So in the Book of Mormon, for example, there's this explicit verse, uh, supposedly in the mouth of Jesus, where he says, just to give an example of this tendency, um, and it came to pass that when Jesus had ended these sayings, he said unto his disciples, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. But wide is the gate and broad the way which leads to death, and many there be that travel therein until the night cometh where no man can work. Wow, that's an issue for LDSism, right? Given what we just covered. And notice that would mean few obtain eternal. If you do the same word games Nelson did on the passage we looked at in that episode, in the Divine Love one, few obtain eternal life, and a majority become sons of perdition. Mm -hmm. 
and even unbelief, as you, as we've covered just barely, could be meet grounds for that. Even though Joseph Fielding Smith, in trying to deal with passages like this, he'll try to say second death is exclusively sons of perdition, mm-hmm. you just have to read all the Book of Mormon to see that that can't work. It teaches that all who die in their sins, and you if you die in your sins, there's no repentance after death in the Book of Mormon, receive the second death. Yet, you know, and, and in fact, if, if you continue into... Here's another example in the DNC, that early strata, stratum. Um, August 1831, DNC 6817. Liars and other sinners suffer the second death. Yet, DNC 76, 1832, February, only sons of perdition, the, they, they are only those who deny the Holy Ghost and the Son. So that, it's just, it can't work. Same with the sons of perdition variable. In 1830, it's all the unrighteous. 1832, DNC 76, most of these inherit celestial kingdom. To the Nauvoo period, Joseph Smith, it's apostates apparently, me. Yeah. <laughs> and then today it's it's restricted to very few where you, I, I read you this passage, uh, I can't remember when it was, a few weeks ago, I think it got under the episode, where Joseph F. Smith literally s- says he doesn't even think Judas Iscariot yeah. uh, qualified to be a son of perdition. Yep. So see that tendency? Yep. And then one just small one just to get it in here. The nature of heaven itself changes. So if you look at 1831, DNC 88, DNC 38, the earth dies, is quickened again, and becomes an Eden-like abode for the righteous. But by 1843, the Nauvoo period, heaven is called a sea of glass and fire, or celestialized, made like unto crystal. So there's even a shift in the nature of heaven itself, which is interesting. Um, but... Anyway, there's there's a little bit of a tour. Hopefully, that helps connect even more dots. Yeah. For for the listener, on how these things develop and what it means even for their system. Yep. Um, I mean, here's yeah. even modern, you know, modern day Uchtdorf. Mm-hmm. They put a quote of of Uchtdorf's into the um, individual and family manual. Yeah. He says that day of judgment will be a day of mercy and love. That's it. A day when broken hearts <laughs> are healed, when tears of grief are replaced with tears of gratitude, when all will be made right. Yes, there will be a deep sorrow because of sin. Yes, there will be regrets and even anguish because of our mistakes, our foolishness, and our stubbornness that caused us to miss opportunities for a much greater future. But I have confidence that we will not only be satisfied with the judgment of God, we will also be astonished and overwhelmed by his infinite grace, mercy, generosity, and love for us, his children. Wow. And of course, who are his children? Within yeah, the every, everybody. Everyone, right? Yep, so everyone's going to receive God's infinite grace, mercy, generosity, yep. and love. There's no, there's no real justice. There's no real judgment. There's no real Jesus with his robes dipped in the blood of his enemies yep. coming down to swipe them away with mm-hmm. his sword and uh, to see them resurrected unto new life to be thrown into the lake of fire forever. Yeah, um, where they will have uh, a suffering of eternal conscious torment because mm-hmm. they are raised up as dishonorable yeah. um, bodies that yep. are destined for eternal punishment mm-hmm. um, because their name is not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And you may, you may, I mean, here's the thing: like you, you may not like it, but that's what the Bible teaches, you know. Mm-hmm. And and if that's the one true God, and this is what He is revealing is going to be the course of all history. It doesn't matter if you like it or not. It's true. Mm-hmm. And um, 
and and you you can trust it even if you don't fully understand it now in your finite state you can trust that one day um, if you are in the true Jesus and this is who you're worshiping one day you will actually worship him not just for his grace and mercy but also for his justice you know you mm-hmm. you, you will be one of the multitudes that are singing that chorus there at the beginning of chapter 19 as you see God execute justice on all wickedness. Yeah. And who who teaches about hell more than anyone else in the Bible? Yeah. Would be Jesus. That's right. And I and I hope, and I, I know there's some rude ways to say it, but there's no other way to say it than to be blunt. I do not care how much someone feels they love Jesus if what he teaches doesn't matter. Because you're, you're going to trust in the, quote, confidence that Uchtdorf has in this lice and lovey-dovey story for yep. all the children yep. where everyone gets a trophy. Um, I, I, you, I, I have no words for the kind of hypocrisy that must actually be to claim to love someone, and yet every time they teach on something you don't believe in, you dismiss it. Yep. Um, Christians don't just love Jesus. We listen to him. And when he teaches something, we don't question it. It's not a negotiable. (laughs) And Jesus teaches about hell as eternal conscious torment more than anyone else in the Bible. Yep. This is not negotiable. And yet here we are listening to supposedly the one true church of Jesus, the living prophets, seers, and revelators of Jesus, basically minimize the very thing Jesus warned about. Um, They have one thing from the seminary manual, just one. They have a section called, How Can I Prepare Myself for the Judgment I Hope For? And they have a quote from Nelson, and I I think it's worth um, including here. It says, Each of you will be judged according to your individual works and desires of your hearts. And this is a theme now, because I think the more they see LDS people know they can't even live their own system consistently, um, at least yet. You'll be perfect eventually, but at least yet in their stage of progression. They're going to um, emphasize desires more, yet, <laughs> read the whole quote, your eventual placement in the celestial, terrestrial, celestial kingdom will not be determined by chance. The Lord has prescribed unchanging requirements for each, and by the Lord, he really means the cosmos. He couldn't create these rules. He can only conform to eternally existing law, DNC 93. So, these are unchanging requirements for each. You can know what the scriptures teach and pattern your lives accordingly. And once again, I hopefully that statement here is here's the living prophet of God, apparently. Which scriptures? And not even the Book of Mormon teaches this. Yep. Yep. And clearly not the Bible. Yeah, definitely. So I mean it's <laughs> um I you know, they do not have the bad news. You know, when you hear uh the story of Luther, which to Christians, this might be a little stereotypical uh, cliche, but Luther talks about, right. Seeing at the, at the local parish, right. The picture of Jesus. And they did have pictures of Jesus with the sword coming out of his mouth, how it haunted him. Mm-hmm. He was just haunted by his sin. Yep. Right. Um, he understood the judgment and justice of God. And that's why, especially once given this, <laughs> the tools of like Erasmus's Greek New Testament, could read the 
Bible more closely in its original languages. Let the text speak for itself. That's why he saw the gospel. Yeah. And we're dealing with a culture that not only doesn't have the gospel, though they call their law the gospel and how they live the gospel and their own lives and feelings the gospel and whatever. They don't have the bad news. They yeah. they literally have no fault. They may claim it, but they just mean a little tweak. In the, it, it's just a, a, a unhappy circumstance of the cosmos that we have to fall in order to progress and and all that. So it's not really a fall. Really, the war in heaven is a little more catastrophic in their view. As Clearly, right? I mean, the Pelagius is conservative relative to the curriculum this whole year. Yep. But they do not fear a God's wrath. Yeah. At all. Yep. Mormon, post-Mormon. Yeah. And therefore, because they do not see the depth of their own sin, therefore the depth to which they see any evil in the world, it's always extrapolated as those people. Yeah. They do not see it as a, a state in which they share. Mm-hmm. The gospel, it's almost like they're inoculated yeah. to the very good news mm-hmm. that is the central message of the Bible. Yep. Of yep. God even in the wickedness of the world, coming, entering in, taking on flesh, paying the penalty for his people and saying, believe in me, right? Yep. Be clothed in his righteousness. He cleanses, he purifies, he does. Yep. And that even someone like the thief on the cross, he can say on my choice, my will, my righteousness, you will be with me today in paradise. Yep. That's good. Well, shall I wrap up our year? Yeah. Let me just finish this out by reading some from Revelation. Chapter 22, starting in verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Thanks for joining us this year. We will see you in 2024.